to wreck it for other people, particularly the faded widow, who would find escape difficult. I had seen this sort of thing happen before, but had done nothing about it beyond protecting myself. On the beach, later, I saw them among the rows of deck chairs. He had accompanied her to book them. Thus they were given neighbouring chairs and would remain together for the fortnight. I saw dawning realisation of this on her face as they trudged over the sand to their shared umbrella, and for a moment our eyes met. She tried to get away. She was a good swimmer, and struck out boldly while he floundered in the shallows. I first spoke to her out there, in the water, clinging to a raft, and in the same way she made friends with a retired colonel and his wife, and two more couples. These people, all aware of her predicament, would sometimes invite her to join them in the bar or to go out in the evening for coffee. I, keeping my own company rigidly, a book held before me, would see her with her other friends drinking strega with her cappuccino, briefly happy. Sooner or later, however, along would come George. Mind if I join you, he'd blithely say, and would do it. The couples were civil. They talked to him for a while, but finished their drinks and then left, abandoning me, Emily, as I christened her, to her fate. Mealtimes were the worst. Because he had adopted her at breakfast, the head-waiter had assumed them to be together, and had allotted them a shared table for all meals. I had had to assert myself to be left alone. It was easier for the staff to seat people in groups, and it took strength of will to stand against the system— as it always does. George spoke a bastard Italian, very loudly, expecting to be understood and becoming heated when he was not. The waiters, whose English vocabulary was limited to phrases connected with food, drink, and cutlery, were at a loss to respond courteously to these aggressive attempts at dialogue. Emily would intervene when George paused for breath, speaking in a soft voice. Her limited Italian was precise. George, however, soon shouted her down like a dominant husband, so that her little attempts to improve understanding withered and died. He ate grossly, too, demanding extra portions and shoveling the food into his mouth, even belching. Afterwards, he complained of indigestion. Emily tanned under the sun. She even bloomed a little as a result of the food, which was very good. But she grew edgy, was restless, twitched her hands. And she was not sleeping. I could see her light on late at night when I leaned out of my own window to watch one of the trains rush past in the darkness. She had paid a lot of money for this holiday, and it was being ruined by an obtrusive boor. I often walked round the town in the evening, buying fruit and mineral water to consume in my room, and I enjoyed these expeditions— once I met Emily scurrying along, head down, arms full of packages. George was not in sight. I did not detain her by speaking, for he might be in pursuit. And he was. I saw him approaching, large belly bulging over his stained slacks, searching about for her. Have you seen Mary Jolly? he asked. I've lost her. So that was, in fact, Emily's unlikely name. She's gone that way, I said, pointing to a narrow alley between chrome-painted houses where children played and cats skulked. 
you'll catch her if you hurry. And I had the satisfaction of seeing him depart in the opposite direction from that taken by his quarry. I caught her up myself. She was buying postcards in a shifty, worried manner, peering over her shoulder as she made her choice, in case he was on her trail. It's all right, I told her. He's gone in the other direction. You can take your time. She looked startled for a moment. Then she smiled, and I saw how pretty she must once have been. He means well, she said. Fatal words. I wondered how many other people's holidays George had wrecked over the years, and indeed, how his good intentions affected those he met in daily life at home. I never managed to miss him at breakfast, no matter what time I come down, Mary Emily confessed as we walked on together. Early or late, he's always there, and my room is too dark and dismal to stay in for breakfast. The trains in the night are so awful, too. Don't they wake you? I agreed that they did. Mary Emily had tried earplugs, but could not sleep at all with them in her ears. A morning glory trailed over the railing above a culvert alongside the pedestrian tunnel under the railway line. It was a dark, eerie passage, where sounds echoed in the vaulted concrete cavern, but above it the blue flowers were brilliant. It's so pretty here, said Mary Emily, the town, I mean, with the oleanders and the palm trees and all the buildings. Look at that lovely wrought-iron balcony. I admired it, but I was thinking. An accident would be impossible to arrange, for George did not swim out far enough to drown, nor were there any cliffs, and there were people about most of the time. It would have to be done here, near the railway. Timed well, the sound of a train would mask any noise. No one would suspect an elderly spinster, a retired schoolmistress of modest demeanour. No one here would know that the elderly spinster had once worked with the French resistance and was no stranger to violence. It was too late to save Mary Emily's holiday this year, but no one else would have to suffer George in future. I went on the organised coach trip to Monte Carlo, which I had not originally planned to do, but I bought the knife there. For my nephew, I said, in my excellent French. The shopkeeper never suspected that I was English, just as no one had all those years ago, when after the German advance I was caught in Paris. George and Mary Emily had booked to go on the outing too, but when the coach was due to leave she had not turned up. George made the driver wait and went to find her, returning to say she had a headache and was not coming. He almost decided to stay behind in case she needed anything, but I persuaded him to come. She should have this one day off, I resolved, silently commending her resource, and I invited him to sit with me in the coach. He talked without pause throughout the journey, and I learned he was a widower who lived alone in Leeds and sold insurance. He had one son, whom he almost never saw. Since his wife died, he told me, he had learned about loneliness, and that was why he befriended the solitary. The effrontery of it! He supposed, by accompanying me now, that he was benefiting me. No wonder his wife had been unable to survive such insensitivity, I thought. When we reached Monte Carlo, I managed to elude him among the crowds. 
to make my purchase unobserved. At dinner that night, Mary Emily looked tranquil after her undisturbed day. After the meal, she went into the town with the army couple, and when George followed them, I followed him. But there was no chance for action that night. I joined the group at a cafe, and we talked late, sheer numbers wearing George down so that others might speak. Because I was there to dilute the mixture, the couple lingered. Mary Emily was secretary receptionist to a doctor in Putney, I learned. I described my years of teaching in a girls' school, but did not mention the war. We walked back to the hotel together, and Mary Emily went up to bed ahead of everyone else. In the end, I did it in daylight. At least, it was light above ground. I found George one afternoon, pacing up and down the hotel garden, wondering where Mary Emily was. It was a shame to waste a minute of such weather indoors, he said. She was sure to be skulking in her room. When he had given her up and gone down to the beach, she would appear in a shady corner of the hotel garden with a book, and remain there, as I did, until she went down for a swim. This was her latest tactic. She's gone to have her hair done, I lied, and I'm just going. I have an appointment after hers. Shall we go together? You could walk back with her. She hasn't left her key, he grumbled. I expect she didn't bother. I don't always leave mine. See, I have it now, I said, showing him the large, brass-tagged hotel key. He was so stupid that he did not know the hairdresser, like all the shops, closed in the afternoons. If he did query it as we proceeded, I would say the hairdresser was an exception.